Okay, let me try actually starting recording. There we go. Well, you've only missed the introduction there. So the picture is the anti-crepuscular rays. And again, it's what you've, see, you've seen this kind of thing because you've seen the sun, you know, see the rays shining through the clouds and you're very familiar with that. The only thing is the sun isn't down there. The sun's actually behind you. So the crepuscular rays are what you're used to seeing when you see the rays coming from the sun as the clouds are set up right. The anti-crepuscular ones actually have gone or traced all the way around the sky and are actually coming to convergence op- exactly opposite the sun. So here you're pointing, in this case this was at sunset, so you're pointing eastward. They're looking eastward towards where the sun would be rising hours later. But the sun is actually just setting behind you and all the rays that you normally would have seen at the sun are actually coming around and converging on the other side of the sky. So there's no sun hiding down here in the clouds, no sun just below the horizon causing these rays. The sun's actually way over on this side of the sky. So that's what makes them a little more interesting than the, one, the typical ones that you that you're used to seeing and you've sort of seen those rays as the sun you know, comes through the breaks in the, in the clouds. So a little interesting one, a big word, anti-crepuscular. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, that I don't even know. I didn't get a chance to look up a pronunciation. So interesting little picture taken in, where was it, Wyoming. So question? I'll give you some light back then. Okay. If not, we'll get on and start to finish up with talking about the planets. Which we have here. Oh, I didn't set that. Where were we? We were well through the planets. We were talking about, we were looking at, we looked at Jupiter. In fact, I think I just come to this one at the end. So, we had just come to, we had just, I think I just flipped to this one when we were, as we were running out of time last time. So we'd been going through, we went through the formation of the planets a little bit. We went through all the terrestrial planets. We zoomed through Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Now we're working on the Jovian planets. We looked briefly at Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Now I'm going to go back through a little bit, just a little bit more detail, a few nicer pictures of each of them. This is some of the features in Jupiter's atmosphere. And again, Jupiter does not have a solid surface. So there's no place on Jupiter that we can go and land and see everything. It's completely, it's almost completely an atmosphere. It's very gaseous. And we see the bands of clouds that we looked at, the zones and the belts, as material, hotter materials were rising and cooler materials were settling in the atmosphere of Jupiter last time. And in this case, we're looking at a picture of what we call the great red spot. So a very large storm on the surface, on the surface of the atmosphere of Jupiter. So sort of like a hurricane on the Earth, we have a storm here on the surface of Jupiter. Surface, I mean the surface of the clouds, not the, no, there is no surface of the planet. And this storm has been around for many hundreds of years. So was observed once we had telescopes that were big enough. So it's been around for two or three hundred years that we know of. And it's still there. We can still see it today. Galileo probe is still flying by Jupiter, observing it. And understanding, you know, trying to learn something about the, about the planet and still watching this great red spot that has been there for this time. To give you an idea of the size, you know, it shows you 10,000 kilometers, but maybe to put a little bit more in perspective, there's the Earth to scale. So this storm is actually, you know, those big hurricanes that we get on Earth, that's nothing. This hurricane is actually bigger, bigger than the Earth and lasts a lot longer than any hurricane that we get on the Earth because it's been there for several hundred years. You know, hurricanes may last a couple of weeks as they build up and come to, come to shore. But here in, this, in, this, in Jupiter, we've had a hurricane that's been there for hundreds of years. 
and we have no clue how long it will last. Yeah, question? It stays in the same belt. So it stays in that same one, it just but it orbits around as this you know, it orbits as it moves, as the planet rotates. But it stays in the same spot. It doesn't go up or higher or lower. It stays in that exact same spot. So unlike our hurricanes which move, you know, build here and then come up and you know, strike Florida, strike Louisiana, strike the you know, wherever they hit on the US or elsewhere, this one just stays and is going around. Question, sir, yes. Why do? There has to be something inside Jupiter that causes it to last so much longer than we don't understand it. We don't know how long it lasts. We don't know if these last two or three hundred years and it's, we just happen to catch it when it formed and it's ready to go away. Or if they last 5,000 years and we're just right in the middle of it. You know, we don't have anything comparable to it, anything else comparable to it on Earth. So why it forms and why it lasts so long is a real good question, but we don't, we don't know. That's what I said, as I was saying, we don't know. Could it be there? Could it disappear tomorrow? Yeah. Could it last another thousand years? And it could. We don't know. We don't understand the mechanism completely, how it's, why, what creates it, what would, call, what would cause it to last, so we don't know how long it would last. So, might disappear. Again, I wouldn't expect it to disappear tomorrow just because you think you'd see some sort of fading of it over time. You think it would slowly start to fade out and it might take multiple years. But we'll take a look at one of these that occurred on Neptune that did disappear. But again, we still don't know, we don't know when it formed. We still don't know how long they last. I'll look at that in just a minute here. Saturn, and again, I said, we're just breezing through these because these are not the planets are not the emphasis of this course. So Saturn has very similar to Jupiter in structure, but everything's hazier. Everything is more is deeper down in the atmosphere because Saturn is twice as far away from the Sun as Jupiter. So it's much colder and therefore you've got a much thicker haze. You've got a much layer haze over the atmosphere. It's colder. Everything is deep down in closer to the planet. So it has those same belts, those same zones. Could have big storms but we're not seeing it as well. We're looking at it through a very hazy atmosphere above that. So it's got a thicker atmosphere and we don't see the detail that we see. We do see the beautiful rings and we'll come back to those and talk about those a little bit in the final chapter, in chapter 8, in the final chapter on the planets. But it's because the atmosphere, because Saturn is further away from the sun, it's colder and it's just got a thicker atmosphere. You have to go deeper down into, atmos into Saturn's atmosphere to get the temperatures that we get on Jupiter that cause all the storms and the zones and the belts and everything that we see. And when we looked at earlier, we looked last time, we looked at Uranus, Uranus was even worse. Uranus had almost nothing on it. And in fact, there's a little picture, an enhanced picture of Uranus. And well, we can measure its rotational period, but it's got very bland, very bland features. You know, if you do some digital processing on the, on the images, you can actually get something. You can actually see storms. And here you're watching two little storms. And you can sort of get an idea of the rotation. Here's A kind of buried in there and B. And then as they come around and around, over a relatively short time period, 20 minutes after 1, 4.34, 9.23, you can see how quickly the planet is rotating. We can follow those storms with something like the Hubble Space Telescope. And another enhanced image here actually is showing the rings. 
again, we're going to come back to rings and talk about the rings, look at the rings of each of the planets in a little bit. But it also has a set of rings here. Uranus is also the planet that's tilted on its side. So instead of orbiting like all the other planets do with their axes straight up and down, they're pointing right at the sun. So they're sort of pointed on their side as they orbit. Meaning that Uranus has much longer seasons and much worse seasons than we do. The bigger the tilt, the greater the season, the seasonal effect is going to be. So that means there's time for, see it takes it about 90 some years to orbit once. So for 20, about 24 years you've got one pole pretty much pointing at the sun. Now of course you're much, much further away from the sun than we are. So it's not going to get blisteringly hot there like it would if we were doing that. But you're still going to have one side of Uranus getting all the sunlight for 20 some years and the other side getting essentially nothing for that time. Question, yes sir? They would suggest that probably there was some major impact early in its history that tilted it, that caused it to tilt, but because everything else points pretty much straight up. But if it's a gas, wouldn't like the impact like go through it? Well, it's 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 primarily gaseous, but there is solid material towards the center. There's just no differentiation. You don't separate. You don't get going from gas on the Earth. You know, you go from gas head to solid all of a sudden. The gas there is so thick that it gets denser and denser that by the time you get down to the solid, your gas is as dense as the solids. You don't notice, you know, here I notice when I hit the table, when I hit the ground, you notice it, even in the water. You know, you notice going from the bottom of the water to the solid surface. You wouldn't notice that in these plants. The gas would be denser than, the, than a solid when you got down because of all the pressure over it. So you could have had some kind of impact that would have, that maybe had tilted it. That's one of the possible explanations to try to explain. Why is it tilted outside? It's the only planet that does that. Every other planet is pointed, you know, we're tilted a little bit, 23 degrees. Mars is about the same. Um, some of them are pretty much straight up and down, but they're all pretty close. This is the only one that's tilted almost completely on its side. In fact, it's tilted a little past its side. Instead of being tilted, zero degrees is straight up. 90 degrees would be right towards the sun, and it's tilted 96, so it's actually tilted over and down just, just a hair. But why, why is another one of those good reasons that, you know, it's the only one. We don't know when it was also before that. I mean, it had to have been interesting. I mean, how the rings are tilted too. So something about how it formed and the rings are actually tilted around it too. So the rings follow the orbit just like it would be like the whole thing was tilted. So maybe the rings formed later from something breaking apart or the like. Neptune, I mentioned there was another storm to see here. Neptune has the great dark spot. That was a great surprise in 1989 because we'd been looking at, I told you, Jupiter had all these nice features. Saturn, they were getting buried deeper in the atmosphere. Uranus, almost completely bland. So what would astronomers expect? They're sending Voyager out there and it's gone through all these planets. Well, we're getting colder and colder. Neptune should be even colder and even blander than Uranus was. And it turns out that it wasn't. There was actually more features on on Neptune than there are in Uranus. And this is actually what, what, they, what Voyager found is the great dark spot. So a big storm on Neptune, similar to the great red spot on Jupiter. But this one isn't still there. Let's see, it was detected in 89 and I think they said it was, Hubble telescope looked at it at 90, in 94 or 95 and it was gone. So. We don't know when it formed. It could have formed hundreds of years before that because we had no clue of this before Voyager got there. So in the time between Voyager and the Hubble telescope, 
You know, we had no, we had no clue what was going on there. So we don't know if it was there. Was it there in 1950? Was it there in 1930? Had it formed in 1985 and it was only there for about five or ten years? Again, we need to be able to follow them long enough and actually see one that has formed and apparently another one has formed. This one was in the lower part of the atmosphere. There's one that's formed in the top, in the northern hemisphere of this, of this planet now. So hopefully this is one we can actually follow. So if we actually can see that it wasn't there and now it's there, and then we can get start to get some sort of idea as to, okay, these things last you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or maybe it'll appear and we'll be looking at it 100 years from now or 200 years from now. It's the problem when you catch something in the middle, you don't know how much was there before. So it's a very difficult thing for us to try to be able to figure out because the time frames for all these planets are much, much longer than a human life. You, know, you have to go multiple generations to look at them. People have been looking at the great red spot for hundreds of years. But this one, I said, this one actually did disappear. It was detected in 1989, but we didn't know whether it was there before. And by the time Hubble looked at it in the early mid-90s, it was gone. So maybe it only lasted a few years. Maybe it was long. Maybe it was a lot longer. Yeah. You said you found they found a, another storm that topped one. Yeah, I was just reading. There's another storm that is up in the northern part. This one was in the southern part of the planet. There's one in the How northern part. It was supposed to be very similar, similar in size. So maybe like hurricanes on Earth, you know, you get one and you can get another. You know, they only last a few weeks, but you can maybe they can come and go. Jupiter being the more interesting, maybe the bigger planets they last longer. You know, here the hurricanes are lasting years, and we know for sure they were there for a certain amount of time. So it may be a possibility that the bigger the planet, the longer the hurricanes last. So maybe that's why Jupiter's has been around for hundreds of years. But it's still very good open questions that astronomers are researching. So it's not something I can give you a, a definitive answer, definitive answer for. Okay. Last chapter in our mad rush through the planets. So we've gone through all the planets. We talked about all of them very briefly. And now we're just going to go and look at the moons and the rings. And yes, we did leave off Pluto. We'll talk about Pluto a little bit as part of, as part of this section since Pluto is not, is not a planet anymore. So the moons, and we talked about moons in terms of the terrestrial planets. We mentioned our moon, and I mentioned the two moons around Mars. I didn't really show you any pictures of them. They're not really anything fabulous. They're probably two little asteroids that happen to pass very close to Mars and get captured into orbits. So they're not big moons by any senses that we're going to be talking about here in terms of Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune. Io is the first of the Galilean satellites. The Galilean moons are those four that Galileo saw. So when he put his telescope to, to look at Jupiter in the early 1600s, he saw the four little points of light around it and was able to see Io. Now he couldn't see it anything near like this. He saw a little dot. He just saw a dot that was zipping around Jupiter every couple of days, very quickly. I think it's. I think it's less than two days it takes to orbit it. So it's really zipping around Jupiter very, very quickly. So he just saw that little point of light. This is something that you would see in terms of a you know, Voyager or the Galileo probe fly, that's flying by or orbiting Jupiter. Now Io is one of the interesting moons in that it is the most volcanically active place in the solar system. So more volcanically active than the Earth. We talked about the volcanoes on Mars. They're extinct. 
So this one actually has active volcanoes on it. And you can see an inset here with a volcanic plume. So you can actually see the site of the eruption. And the thing is, this is an object that is much smaller than Earth, smaller than our moon, smaller than Mars, so smaller than other things that don't have any volcanic activity. So why does this one have, why does this object have volcanic activity? And it goes back to one of the reasons I left that part in on the tides when we talked about the Earth, is that that same thing is happening to Io. Io is getting stretched by Jupiter. It's very close to Jupiter. As I recall, it's about the same distance from Jupiter. Oh, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's very close to the distance from our moon from us. But Jupiter is so much bigger, so much stronger gravity. So remember I told you on Earth what, what happens? The water gets stretched, right? Well, here you're actually stretching the planet. You're actually stretching the moon a little bit. Not tremendously, you know, you're not taking it and making it into an egg shape, but the numbers I've read said it can stretch by as much as 100 meters. You can make a tidal bulge 100 meters long. So you're stretching the planet 100 meters. Well, that would be all well and good, and that wouldn't actually do anything in terms of volcanoes if it weren't for the fact that there's other moons too. Because Jupiter would stretch it, and it would just keep that elongated shape towards Jupiter all the time as it orbited. But what it also has is you also have other moons further out that are pulling on it and that pass close and give it little tugs. So you end up giving it as Europa, which is the next moon out we'll look at in a minute, passes by, it sort of gives it a tug and twists it a little bit. And you end up, you end up heating the planet just from all these tidal interactions. And examples you can give if you ever you know, needed bread dough, it gets warm, right? Needed clay, you know, you start working with it, it gets warmer and warmer as you keep twisting it. This planet keeps getting twisted inside. What's the other? Paper clip. You know, bend a paper clip back and forth, it eventually breaks, right? And if you touch that part, it feels warm. You've heated it up through that constant interaction, that constant twisting. Jupiter and the other moons are constantly twisting on Io and heating up its interior, causing it to have a lot of heat and causing it to still be volcanically active even when all the other objects in the solar system of that size have long since cooled off and lost any activity. You know, Mars had volcanoes, it's long since cooled off. Um, you know, sometimes we see evidence on, there's evidence on some of the other planets, you know, the moon might have had some volcanic activity very early on. They've all since cooled off. But that's the source of energy for Io. And Io is also different that you see this surface, there also has no impact craters. Doesn't mean it's not getting hit by craters. Okay, it's, meteors are hitting it, just like they're hitting every other object in the solar system. But the volcanoes are so active that they wipe them out in a very short period of time. Might be hundreds or thousands of years, you know, similar to like it takes on the Earth, it takes a certain amount of time. But it's wiping them out very quickly and you don't see anything that's hundreds of millions or billions of years old like we do on the moon and like we will see on all of the other objects. We saw old craters on Mercury, on Mars, even there were craters on Venus, and we'll see craters on the other moons of Jupiter. Io is constantly getting wiped out by these constant volcanic eruptions, constantly eliminating any craters that form. Europa is the next one. Europa has, oops, question? Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to ask how similar are the volcanoes on Io to volcanoes on Earth? Are they nothing? They'd be, they'd be similar. I mean, similar. They're caused through a different process because of the tidal heating instead of just internal heat. 
but they'd be similar. You'd have, mol you'd have molten. In this one, in this case, Io is pretty much molten rock. So you would have molten rock. We'll see uh, volcanoes. We'll see stuff further out that's actually more molten ice, if you want to think about it that way. But yeah, these would actually be very similar, you know, emitting a lot of sulfur and things that, are, that a regular volcano here would, would emit. Other things on Io before I? Okay. Europa. Europa also has, okay, they say no craters. It has a few craters, very, very few. But there's actually a couple of impact craters on Europa. But the interesting thing about Europa, it's a little bit further away. We're starting at the close, we started at the closest moon to Jupiter. Io is the closest. Europa is the next further out. Europa is actually has a surface of ice. Its surface is ice and water ice. Primarily water ice, you know, it's a typical ice like you have here, a giant glacier about it covering the planet. Now it's also being heated the same way that Io is, but it's further away, so the gravitational effects are less. But it does have, and they've actually found that there is actually an ocean. So the whole thing is frozen on top where it's exposed to space, but if you go down kilometers beneath it, there are actually oceans and lakes of liquid water in the, below the surface of Europa. So Europa is often looked at as one of those very likely places. If you're going to look for life elsewhere in the solar system, you know, Mars is usually a good one. Europa is one of the others. Because we have evidence of actually liquid, of having liquid water there. So it's sort of a possibility that you could see that. Some of these are just kind of zooming in. These pictures here are just zooming in, looking at the surface. So you're going from one area to there, to there, and you can sort of see just the almost icy structures on it. And as the surface is dried and cracked, as things have, as you know, water has formed for it, if an impact were to hit, we don't get many craters because if it breaks through the surface, you know, you'd have water flow like lava would flow on the earth, and you'd have the water would flow out, fill up any craters, and not leave you very, not leave very much. You might find a few small craters, and there are a couple but not near as much as you'll find when we get to the outer two moons. The tidal forces are what's causing all the issues. So the tidal forces are constantly cracking that surface and allowing water to flow from the, from the interior and sort of keep it. It's sort of its volcanic activity, unlike Io's, which is more like the Earth's. Is this, is more, this is all water. Water, liquid water, and solid water, ice. But it keeps the surface relatively smooth. But you do see some of those frozen patterns that you might get on ice even on, the, even on the Earth and some cracking just as you get those tidal forces that were squeezing um, Io. They're doing the same, trying to do the same kind of thing to Europa. It's just, you know, much further away from Jupiter, so the forces are much less. So we don't actually get all the volcanic activity the same as we get on, on Io. A little further out, Ganymede is the biggest moon. This is the largest moon in the entire solar system. So it's actually bigger than Mercury, bigger than, much, much bigger than Pluto, as big as Mercury. It's considered to be very similar to the Earth's moon in terms of if you look at it, look at the upper picture there, you see some darker areas, you see some lighter areas. You know, on the moon we had dark areas that were lava flows. Here you have dark areas and lighter areas that may have been ice flows. So very similar history possibly to the Earth's moon in terms of large impacts creating big basins. 
But in this case, instead of creating the basins in rock as it did on the, Earth, on the Earth's moon, it created them in icy materials. As, the, as that moon heated up inside, that ice would have flowed to fill those basins. You can actually get Maria, similar things to Maria on Ganymede that are much like the Maria on the moon. Again, the only difference is instead of the lunar rock flowing, so you have, instead of having rock flow, you'd have ice flowing. You're, remember, you're much, much further out in the solar system. You know, Earth is one astronomical f- unit from the sun. Jupiter is five. So it's five times further away than, away than the Earth. It's going to be a lot colder out there. So the temperatures are going to be, you know, ice is not, you're not going to have liquid water unless you're, unless you have it buried deep down someplace where it's heated up. The surfaces are all going to be much too cold to do that. So that's Ganymede. So Io is the inner, Europa, Ganymede. And then the outermost moon is Callisto. And this one, if you look at this, we're getting further and further away from Jupiter, less and less tidal heating, so less activity and more craters. So as we look at one area on here, boy, that looks like the moon, right? Now, if I just showed you that picture and asked you if it was the moon, you'd probably tell me yes, right? It sure looks like it. But this is actually a picture from Ganymede. And instead of being rock, a lot of the surface is a mixture of rock and ice. So whereas things on the Earth and the inner planets are mixtures of rocks and metals, here you have mixtures of rock and ice. And you can sort of see that in this large impact that occurred on, on Callisto. And look at how the crust almost fractured. You can, almost, you can see the circular rings around it and sort of like you threw something in, on glass or on an ice, you know, throw a big, big rock into ice. Well, if it doesn't break through, it gets that shattering pattern. And you get the same kind of thing. A lot of this surface contains a lot of icy materials. And you see similar things in, in that. So Callisto, again, similar to Ganymede. And we mentioned there are no evidence of plates. So there's no evidence any place other than the Earth right now of anything that has the plates that move. So you know, we have the plates that move that give us all our volcanic activity. I showed you the one on Mars, Valles Marineris, the big valley. But even these larger moons, which are big, Callisto is similar in size, a little bit smaller than Mercury. But even though they're relatively big for moons, they're still much too small and do not contain any kind of heating that causes the plate activity that we see on Earth. So that's something right now, as far as we know, that is specific to the Earth in the solar system, at least. All right, further out. Jump to the next planet. Titan. The one moon we'll talk about around Saturn. So Jupiter had four big moons. Don't forget there were like 163 moons out here in these outer planets. I'm only going through the big ones. So there's lots of other little ones, which are mostly more little asteroid and rock type things. Titan is actually an interesting because none, none, when we talk about the Jovian moons, we talked about the Galilean satellites, there were no atmospheres. You know, we only talked about atmospheres. We talked about the Earth. We talked about maybe Mars had a little atmosphere. Venus had an atmosphere. The Jovian planets did, but we didn't talk about any of the moons. Titan actually does have an atmosphere. And it's actually an atmosphere that's thicker than the Earth's. So it's more, thick, more, th- uh, more thicker. How about just thicker than the Earth's? And denser than the Earth's. And its also composition is very similar to the Earth. It's got a lot of nitrogen, 
Well, that's about three quarters of our atmosphere. Argon, another decent component to our atmosphere. No oxygen. So we can't, can't go breathe there. But it does have a very thick atmosphere, very similar in composition, ignore the oxygen, to what we have on the Earth. But it also makes it a very hazy atmosphere. A lot of the organic molecules that exist there uh, sort of make it impossible to see the surface. So this nice picture from about 4,000 kilometers away shows you a nice big surface, nothing. Like looking at Venus, you couldn't see anything. You have to be able to get down below those clouds. You've either got to use radar to get below the clouds, to look below it, to see the surface, or you've got to land on the surface. And we did. I'll show you that in just a minute. We actually, when the Cassini spacecraft went to Saturn, it also carried with it a probe. So one of the probes was sent and was launched out to go and land on uh, Titan to actually see the surface. And there's actually a couple pictures taken. I'm pretty sure the first one was taken on descent. And the second looks like it was descending down there. That's about 20 kilometers in size. This is after landing. So you have that haze. You have that yellowish haze in Titan's atmosphere, giving it sort of that glow. And it sort of doesn't look that different than some of the picture we looked at of Venus last time. And it doesn't look all that different. Again, all these planets, either the planets, the moons of the Jovian planets or the terrestrial planets, they really look about the same on the surface. Yes, sir? I put these on there for you now. I know. I'm sorry. But visiting the surface is one thing we've actually been able to now land on the surface, so we didn't know what the surface looked like. Okay. So we didn't know what the surface looked like before. But again, it looks very much like everything else we look at in the solar system, right? I mean, Mars didn't look that different than that. The pictures of Venus didn't look that different. The pictures of Earth, if you're talking about a desert area, you know, not the middle of Harrisburg, not the middle of a tropical forest or something, but you know, out in, you know, out in Death Valley someplace, maybe it looks similar to that. I mean, all you've got is rocks strewn around. You don't have anything else. It doesn't look all that different. The other interesting thing about Titan has that atmosphere, has a lot of methane in the atmosphere. And it turns out that the temperature on Titan is just about right where methane can exist as a liquid or a gas or a solid. So it could actually play a similar role that water does on Earth where we can have, you know, we can have water vapor, we have ice, solid water, and we have liquid water. Well, methane could do the same thing on Titan, so you could actually get methane rain. So it could actually rain there. You could get storms in the atmosphere and you could get rain. Instead of rain being water rain that we're used to, it would be raining methane. So it wouldn't be something you'd want to go visit, but it would be very interesting. And it's another interesting thing in terms of life. You know, if you want to look at possibility of life being based on something other than water, you know, could it be based on methane? And that's something we'll look at in the last chapter of the book. Okay. And we skipped, skipped Uranus. Uranus really doesn't has, has a bunch of moons, but nothing big in size. Neptune has one real big moon comparable to the other ones we've talked about. And Triton is interesting in a couple ways. It doesn't have very many craters, few, but showing that it has an active surface, it's very close to Neptune. So very, very close to Neptune. So it's probably getting some activity and some gravitational heating 
just like the moons of Io and Europa did around, around Jupiter. But Triton is also back, orbits backwards. So you know, all the other planets revolve around in a counterclockwise direction. So if you look down from the top of the solar system, everything's going around counterclockwise. All the planets go around the sun that way. All the moons go around the planets. You know, our moon goes around. All the planets, except for Venus, which rotates backwards, rotate that way. You know, so everything goes in the same direction. Triton is actually a big moon that's going around backwards. So it's in a very close orbit to Neptune and probably something that could at some point as it's in, an, or as it's in the backwards orbit, it probably will eventually you know, crash and be gone into Neptune. Again, not this year, not next year. Talking mil- millions, many millions of years. And Triton may have something. Why would it be in a retrograde orbit? And it could be something similar. You know, we talked about these collisions. I've already mentioned collisions in a number of things in terms of creating the Earth's moon. Perhaps making Venus rotate backwards. I don't know if I mentioned that one to you guys. That's another one. Um, in terms of Neptune being tilted. And it could be some sort of large collision could have been responsible for putting this moon or capturing this moon into a backwards orbit. So large collisions like this may have been something very common in the early solar system. We can see a number of different effects on them. You know, maybe that's why we have a moon around the Earth and none of the other terrestrial planets do. We're the one that happened to get hit. Well, maybe Venus got hit too, but it got hit differently or got hit more directly and almost stopped its rotation because Venus actually rotates backwards. There's also been some geysers. You know, we have Old Faithful here on Earth. Well, these are geysers. Much too cold out there to be spewing water out. It's actually spewing liquid nitrogen because of the very cold temperatures out that far. Do you have quest- questions? Yeah, um, Lord, you talk about the possibility of moons being from impact on the planets. Mm-hmm. At least in terms of the Earth and the moon, that's sort of our current theory for the Earth and the moon. The, other, the outer moons, we tend to think maybe some of these formed. So the planet would have um, like reformed. Like ex- don't you expect a chunk of the planet to be missing? It would have, it would have repaired. You would have smashed it. This would have been very, very early in the history. So, if when you think about the Earth, the Earth would have been molten at the time. It would have been a big ball of liquid. So, yeah, you would have taken some and you would have thrown some into space, and some would have coalesced. But the whole thing would have very quickly conformed itself back into being a sphere. So, yeah, not just a big chunk. If you hit it now, something like that, yeah, you'd think a big chunk would be, would be missing from it. But over time, especially with these outer planets, you know, they're very gaseous. You wouldn't even notice the notice an impact. Okay, Questions on the moons? Again, I'm not going to go through all the other 160 or so that, that exist. Most of them are, there's some interesting ones, but most of them are, these are the biggest and the most, the biggest and the most interesting of them. Okay, then rings. I'm going to look at rings very briefly here. Saturn's the big one, you know, right? Everybody's heard of the rings of Saturn, seen the pictures of the beautiful rings of Saturn. And those are the ones that you know, Galileo, looking through the telescope, couldn't quite, didn't have, quite have a big enough telescope to be able to see them. So he saw two big blobs on either side of Saturn, and then they disappeared, and then they'd come back, depending on how the planet was tilted. But they have a, they're, not, you know, they're not as smooth. They're not like a solid Frisbee around Saturn. They're actually little tiny ice particles. So they're all very small you know, particles that could be really tiny or, you know, you know, hand size, meter size, but they're not real big giant objects. They're relatively small pieces. 
And they're divided. And there's a very distinct, and this is the way this image has been enhanced, sort of looking almost from behind, that you see how it's illuminated. There's all this different structure within the rings. So there's the A, B, and C rings are the primary rings that you can see. There's an A ring. There's a big gap here with hardly any ring particles in it called the Cassini division. Further in is the bright B ring and then the darker C ring towards right, real close to the planet. But there's all this structure to them. And they get a lot of structure based on the moons, of, the moons that are orbiting. So not just the rings, but you have the moons orbiting as well. As the moons orbit around, their gravity tugs on these objects. And one of the moons of Saturn, for example, is probably at just the right distance so that it almost always meets this, so it always orbits to the same, or, or like twice half the period of one of these objects. So they're con- these objects, as they move around Saturn, are constantly getting that little tug from that moon. And it, over time, not immediately, but over many millions of years, it clears out that spot. It's constantly getting that extra little tug from this moon. And there's all sorts of, we talked about the resonances on Mercury. Remember I said it had a 3 to 2, so it went around, it spun on its axis three times when it went around the sun twice. Well, you could get a 3 to 2 resonance between a moon and ring particles, or you can get a 5 to 4 or a 7 to 3. The more simple ones, like 2 to 1 and 3 to 1, are best at clearing out ring particles, but even the others over time will empty out and cause structure to form in the rings. The moons do that. There's also a lot of tiny moons around these, around these rings. Some of the tiny moons serve as shepherds. You know? Shepherds keep the, keep the sheep together. Well, the shepherding satellites keep the ring particles together. So you might have a, ring, a, ring, a moon that orbits just outside or just inside this ring, and it serves to keep the particles from you know, slowly spreading out over time. Yes, sir? Well, we call them shepherding satellites. So yeah, shepherd moons. I mean, they'd have names as well. You know, each of them would be named as well. But I can't give you. There's you. There's a number associated with each ring system. Remember, there's 166 moons out here, so you could have quite a few associated with each ring, with each ring system. The bigger moons are the ones that cause the gaps. The little ones, following real close to the rings, are the ones that keep the particles. Because otherwise, slowly over time, the, par- the rings would spread out. But the, the, the shepherding satellites keep them there. So otherwise, if we didn't have those shepherding satellites, these rings would disappear over you know, a million years. They'd be gone. But because we have those confining satellites keeping the particles confined, they'll last a lot longer. They'll still slowly fade off. So it's possible that Saturn's rings you know, could be very brilliant right now, could be a lot, not, not as brilliant 100 million years from now. But it will keep them orbiting, keep them in line for a lot, much longer time. Now that's the one, that's the, that's the best ring system. That's Saturn. You, that's the one you can see from Earth. In fact, the only one you can really see well from Earth. But all of the other Jovian planets have rings as well. And I'm going to show you pictures of each of them. There's not a lot of detail to them. Jupiter has a real small, thin ring. That's why you think, why doesn't Jupiter have a nice big ring system like Saturn? It's a bigger planet. It should have a bigger, prettier ring system. And it doesn't. It does have a small thin ring, but it does not have a bigger ring system. Did it at some point in the past? It could have, you know, a billion years ago that's faded off. 
Or could it form one in the future? You know, if a, something gets too close to it, we mentioned this last time, if you get too close, those tidal forces you know, not only stretch the object, but eventually could rip it apart. So if something got too close to Jupiter, it could actually get torn apart. So Jupiter has a ring. Again, not, not much of a ring. That's a nice high vision picture of it, and you're seeing pretty much the detail that you'd see in it, not near what we see on Saturn. Uranus has a bunch of several rings, very, very narrow, and again, very, very well, very, very well defined. If you look at this one, this is actually, this top is actually this little thin ring out here, actually blown up, and you can see all the detail in it. Now, the rings of Uranus were discovered by accident back in the 1970s. What astronomers were doing was it turned out that, I think it was in 70, 77? that Uranus was going to pass in front of a star. You know, happens every once in a while, a planet moving through will happen to go right in front of a star. That's a big thing because as it passes the star, you can watch the light from the star dim and you can learn about the atmosphere. So this was long before we had probes that had been to Uranus or Neptune. So we actually had a chance, okay, we're going to observe this, what we call an occultation as it passes in front of it. Yeah? You say 1977. I'm pretty sure it was 77. I could be off a year or two. Either way, but it was mid-late 70s. So, as, so you, you, they put a telescopes watching, this, watching for this occultation, watching for Uranus to pass in front of the star. And fortunately what they did was they turned on their equipment early you know, to get ready for it. You know, they knew when the time was supposed to occur, but you always want to be ready. So you turn it on you know, half an hour early just to make sure you know, your calculations aren't off and you don't end up missing it. And what they found was that what you'd expect to see is, you know, the starlight, you'd see the nice bright star and you'd keep seeing its light and you'd record how bright it was, you know, and you'd just get a, draw a little diagram of it, you'd see the brightness. If you looked at the brightness, now you'd see this, it would just be, you get the same amount of intensity from it. And then when you hit the planet, it would go disappear for a while and then come back out. So that's what you'd expect to see from the brightness of the star. See the star, star disappears, star comes back. But what they found was that the good thing they turned it on earlier is that there was a dip here. That there were five dips on before it. Before it actually reached the planet, the light dimmed a little bit as that star passed through each of the rings. So as we passed through that big thick ring, which is the furthest, furthest one there, it got a bigger dip. And as you passed through each of the others, you got a little tiny less of a dip. So that was very interesting and of course all the astronomers are excited then and they're waiting for the end and instead of turning off your equipment then well you want to see because if they think it's probably a ring system because that would explain this but if it is a ring system then you should see exactly the same pattern on the other side. Right? You pass the rings going in, planet, there's got to be rings on the other side. So when they came out they saw the same kind of thing one, two, three, four, five. Same exact pattern. And that was actually the discovery of Neptune's ring. So they were discovered, again, quite by accident. They turned, if they had turned their equipment on, and I've, I've kind of exaggerated it, they're much further out. There's a bigger gap in here. Should be a much bigger gap in there. So, I mean, they could have waited and turned them on just before they were going to start, and they never would have discovered the rings. Because if you hadn't looked at them in the first place, why are you going to leave your equipment on after it's done? Okay, stars back, click, turn everything off. And you never would have found them. Now we would have found them again about 10, 12 years later. When was it? Oh, 
Uranus was 80, so about less than 10 years later, you would have found them when Voyager got there. Voyager would have been able to see them easily because you're right there, you know, right at the planet. But we actually were able to discover them earlier in this case. But again, the same type of structures, the same type of shepherding moons, you know, little tiny moons. And the moons only have to be a few kilometers across. They don't have to be, you know, okay, I can't stretch my arms a few kilometers across, but you know, they're not very big moons to do the shepherding. Just very little ones, you know, one on each side can actually guide and keep those rings as narrow as they are because those are very, very narrow, very narrow rings. Neptune has a couple rings. Again, we don't know a whole lot about them. You can see them in the picture here. The big black bar is just blotting out all the light from Neptune. But Neptune is actually different in that it has a couple narrow rings, a couple wide rings. Some of them are, all the other rings look nice and smooth. Some of Neptune seem to disappear at points. There are almost hardly any particles on one side and more on the other. It's something we really need. What Neptune really needs is something out there studying it. There needs to be some way to study it better to figure out what's going on with its rings. So you can't really see a lot of detail. Even with Hubble from the Earth, you're not going to see a lot of detail in those, in those rings. And you know, we don't have anything that I know of, at least, planned to go back to Neptune. We were there in 89, was the Voyager probe that went by Neptune. And pretty sure that's when the rings were discovered as well. I think it, took, I think it was Voyager that actually discovered them. But it does have a set of rings. Again, nothing as fabulous as the rings of Saturn, so the best. Then Uranus are kind of nice because just see they're so thin. But, and then their discovery was a little more interesting. And Neptune, again, has another set of rings. So each of the Jovian planets does have, does have at least a ring or a group of rings. And on to Pluto. Pluto was discovered 1930. And it was, had been searched for for, many, for decades before that. And what had happened is we'd known for the longest time we had five planets, right? Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. That was it. In the 1700s, Uranus was discovered. And that was all great and wonderful. It, was, it had been, Uranus is right at the edge of visibility to the naked eye. You can't really quite see it. I mean, it's a completely dark site. You might be able to get a glimpse of it but it would be the faintest thing you could see in the sky. So it really wasn't discovered until telescopes were around and able to map it. And even then it took them time. They found it a few times and lost it. But once they found it, they'd map its orbit and try to figure out, okay, where is it going to be? You know, where is it going to be tomorrow? Where is it going to be next year? Where is it going to be the following year? You know, using Newton's laws, trying to figure out exactly how it's moving. Well, it didn't move quite right. And again, I'm doing Uranus right now. Uranus didn't move quite right. So the explanation was, maybe there's another planet out there. You know, we just found one new planet. Maybe there's another one out there that we didn't know about. So they went through and did the calculations, said, OK, here's how Uranus is moving compared to how it should move. So what, what has to be pulling on it? What has to be slowing it down? What has to be speeding it up at different times in order to account for the orbit we actually see? And they made the predictions. They went through the calculations to predict the existence of Neptune and found it. Yeah. Didn't take them very long of searching. They searched, it was found relatively close to where they predicted and was about what was, what was predicted. So when they found Neptune, they were all excited and they said, okay, there were still some irregularities. 
even though I tell you now that there aren't, there weren't any, but they thought there were, you know, maybe just observational errors at the time, but you know, Neptune wasn't following quite right, so they made the same prediction. And, okay, do the calculations, search for Pluto. Couldn't find it. So they couldn't find, couldn't find Pluto. They eventually ended up just sort of scanning the sky. You'd scan the whole sky looking for an object that moved. And you'd take pictures of that part of the sky. You'd take a picture now and you'd take a picture you know, a year later or two years later. And you'd look at them at the same time. You know, sort of a stereoscope. You'd look at both of them at once. And you'd look, flip between them and look for this object that moved. And that's how Pluto was discovered. So it's quite by chance. It's much, much smaller than anything else. And it's much too small to even have caused any irregularities in the orbit if they had existed. Pluto's much, much too small to have done that. It's smaller than our moon, so its gravity isn't enough to really do anything to the orbits of Uranus or Neptune. But that's sort of the discovery of Pluto, and that became the ninth planet in 1930, and stayed the ninth planet until 2005, when astronomers actually made a definition of a planet. The planet had never been defined before. You know, what is a planet? It was just, okay, here are the planets. It had never been defined, specifically defined before. And once they defined it, um, once they defined what a planet was, I'm going to come back to this slide here in a minute, but let me go ahead and do that. But in terms of defining what a planet is, a planet had to have three characteristics. to orbit the sun. Okay? Basic, basic easy one, right? If it's in order to be a planet, it has to orbit the sun. Something orbiting Jupiter, even if it's as big as Mercury, isn't a planet because it's not orbiting the sun. So Ganymede, bigger than, bigger than Mercury, is not a planet because it's not orbiting the sun. The second thing it had to do, let's see, orbit the sun, it had to be have a spherical shape. Just meaning that it was large enough that it could pull itself into a sphere. A lot of the objects can do that. You know, Earth is pretty much spherical. Jupiter, Saturn, all the planets are pretty much, they can be slightly squashed, but they're spherical. They're not all big, irregular, rocky, asteroid type shapes. So Pluto's real good here and here. Pluto does orbit the sun, and it has is enough mass, still has enough mass to have pulled it into a spherical shape. But the third thing it has to be able to do is to clear its path. So there can't, there's not going to be a lot of other objects around it. And Pluto fails there. That's where Pluto failed the definition of a planet. So it's not, a, it's not big enough to actually clear its path. It didn't gather up enough other objects out there that we're going to look at. I'll come back to those here. I'll come to those here at the end of, the, end of this PowerPoint. But it didn't have enough. It didn't have enough mass to actually clear its path. Everything else did. You know, Jupiter, there's no other big objects around Jupiter's orbit. There are around Pluto's orbit many now, now we know hundreds or thousands of objects that are just like Pluto. Yeah? So there's those uh, three things are the characteristics which uh, Pluto moves like its direction? Those, these three things yeah. are the definition of a planet. This is the astronomical unit definition of a planet. And it was the International Astronomical Union.
And this was done in 2005 just to define what a planet is because it had never been determined. And it was the point problem was that we were discovering other objects. If we ignore this last one, the largest asteroid series fits these two. Um, there's another object that I show you in another slide called Eris, which is out there, actually a little bit bigger than Pluto and out beyond Pluto, that fits these two. So we're starting to get to the point, okay, are these all planets or all, where, where, where do we draw the line between a planet and what we now call a dwarf planet? Pluto fell on the wrong side of the line. It's actually a dwarf planet now because it doesn't meet this one criteria that all the other eight planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, all the other ones reach. It doesn't reach, all, it doesn't fill that, that definition. But that's actually the formal definition that was created. So in order to discover a ninth planet now, it has to orbit the sun. Lots of objects do that. It has to be big enough to pull itself into a spherical shape. Fewer objects do that, but there's still a lot of them. But it also has to be able to clear out its paths. So you'd have to find a big planet out there that is empty around it. And when we look at Pluto, there's a lot of other objects. Eris is one, but there's also a lot of other ones that I'll show you on the last slide here coming up that, does not, that, that are around that area as well. Now Pluto's moon, Charon, was discovered in 78, so about the same time as the uh, rings of Uranus. And if I recall, this is probably the discovery photo. So there's Pluto. Now it's a real nice image from the Earth. That was long before Hubble Space Telescope, long before anything else out there. And Charon was out here, so you could see a little bulge on one side. Now one bulge on one side didn't mean much, but as you could watch it over time and you could see as things rotated, you could actually see the position change. But Pluto not only has one moon now, and Charon is about not that much smaller than Pluto, but it also has Nix and Hydra, which are even somewhat smaller moons, that were discovered in 2005, so discovered about seven years ago now. And it had a fourth moon that was discovered last year. Fourth moon has not been named, as far as I've heard yet, it's just called P4 for Pluto 4, fourth moon of Pluto. But it actually has a fourth moon that has been discovered that is sort of in between these two. So it sort of orbits in between where Nix and Hydra do, it's in between those. So Pluto actually has four moons now. So pretty interesting for a very small object, again smaller than our moon, actually has four moons of its own. And those were discovered, say, two were the first one was discovered in 78, the others were 2005, and the last one was discovered last year. Now, this is an example, this is Eris, and I mentioned this one before. Eris has a little moon of its own, dysnomia. But Eris is actually an object very much like Pluto in terms of size, orbits further, a little further away from the sun than Pluto does. But we've started to find these in the 90s. And so instead of having just that one Pluto out there all by itself, there's now hundreds of these objects. Now, Pluto and Eris are, are the two biggest by quite a, by, by a reasonable amount. And there's lots of, more, lots of smaller ones out there. But Eris, this one, is actually slightly bigger than Pluto. So we actually get two. So we actually have two objects out there. So then the question became, and this is part of the reason we had to go back and make this definition, is that is Eris planet number 10? So do we have 10 planets now? And then if we find another one that's that size, because these are hard to find, I mean, we're just finding them now so we have the technology, we are able to find them. 
But, you know, so do we find 10? And if we find something else that's a little bit smaller than Pluto, is it planet 11? You know, it's where do you draw the line? So that's when astronomers had to sit down and actually make a formal definition of the things that a planet should be able to do. So now we have things like planets. We got the eight planets. We have dwarf planets, which include Eris, Pluto, and Ceres. And you have much other smaller objects. You have Kuiper belt objects, which are the objects that are out there with Pluto. You have asteroid belt objects, which can vary in size, you know, from you know, some very small, a few centimeters across, to many meters, boulders, even kilometers across. So you have a big variety of objects that you can, that you can see now. So it's actually just a formal definition was made. It wasn't that astronomers you know, hated Pluto and wanted to get rid of it. It was trying to find out where the distinction was between what a planet was and what these other objects were. So here's the last one. Here's actually the biggest, some of the largest ones. There's our moon, just for comparison, just to give you an idea of how big Pluto is. There's Earth to scale. Our moon, Pluto's actually a little bit smaller than that. Eris is slightly bigger, closer in size, but still a little smaller than our moon. So these are very, very tiny objects out there, significantly smaller than any other planet. Some of them are small and spherical. Some of them are a little less, less spherical. But again, they're also, we call them the Kuiper Belt objects. They're sometimes called Plutoids after Pluto. So Pluto gets to be the prime object, you know, the biggest now, the first of the Plutoids that we've discovered. And we're continuing to discover these. I said there's several hundreds known now. We're still discovering them. So there's no reason that, you know, Eris is right now the biggest. As we can progress further and further out and we look further and further out and find more, it's quite possible that we'll find something that's even bigger. You know, I don't think you're going to find a tremendous, I think if there was anything that was planet-sized, we would have dis discovered it by now. I think we would have been able to see that, but things this size I think we'll still be able to discover over the coming, coming years. So, questions? Otherwise that was our mad rush through the solar system. So, well, we're, still, we're not leaving the solar system, actually we're going to the sun, but I want to see if there are any questions there before I flip over to the sun so we can hopefully get, get started on the sun and cover most of that on Thursday for you. All right, where was I? Chapter 9. Beautiful picture of the sun there. There's the sun. Okay. So we're not leaving the solar system. We, we completed our mad journey through the planets. Um, the sun is sort of our good, a starting point for this class. You've gone through a lot of the introductory material. The sun is the first of the stars that we're going to study. So we study the sun because we know it in detail. We can see it. It's so much closer. It's really the only star we can see as an actual disk. We can actually image and take pictures of it. Now I can take a picture of any other star and there's a few that are very big and close enough that we can see them as a teeny tiny little disk. You can actually see some kind of structure to them, but there's only a handful. Almost every star that we see in the sky, even through the most powerful telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope, anything else, still looks like just a point of light. So the thing about the sun is it's the one star that we can study and look at in great detail. So we can actually look into the surf, look at the surface and see different parts of it. What's going on on this surface, this part, what's going on over here, and how does that change over time? You see in the picture some of the big prominences. The sun is a very active surface. You know, it doesn't just sit there calmly. You know, you look at it, you look at the sun, don't stare at it too long. But when you glance at the sun, you really don't see anything on its surface. When you look at it in more detail, 
And this is actually taken in the light of hydrogen. So that hydrogen, that red line of hydrogen that we've talked about before, and we'll mention again, that shows the really bright areas or the very hot areas. So these would actually be, if we looked at a regular photograph of the sun, those would be very dark. Those would be the sunspots. But when you look at them in the bright emission of hydrogen, they're being excited, the hydrogen is being excited there and it causes it to glow more. And you also see a lot more detail in terms of the prominences and the different activity of the sun that we'll talk about. Well, we'll get, it'll get started on today and then finish up on, on Thursday. So what we're going to talk about for this chapter, first of all, the sun. The sun in bulk is just general numbers, just the general quantities talking about the sun. And then we'll look at the sun in, in parts. We'll look at the interior of the sun. What is the sun like inside? And we have a pretty good clue of that, about as good as we have of the Earth. We've never been down inside the Earth. You know, We've gone down, what, a few kilometers? Out of thousands of kilometers? So we, we, can, we can infer it's, it's structure other ways. We can do the same thing with the interior of the sun. So we can actually get a pretty good idea of what the solar interior is like. Solar atmosphere we can see. We can actually study the atmosphere of the sun. When we look at the sun, we have a surface, as we call it, but it's much like the Jovian planets. There's no solid surface there. There's nothing you could go land on, even though the temperatures are so hot that you'd melt whatever you landed with anyway. But there's no actual surface, but there's a visible surface. What we see is the surface of the sun. And then above that, we have thinner parts of the sun, which is the atmosphere. So sort of like the Earth has a surface, although ours is solid, and has an atmosphere above it, the sun has an atmosphere. The active sun, well, that's where we are right now. Sun is quite active right now, um, going through stages. It's had some quiet periods recently and then seems to be picking up again. But we're heading towards a maximum of solar activity right now. And we'll look at the sunspots and the solar flares and the solar prominences and all of those kind of things that occur with that. And then, I said we started with kind of the solar interior. We end up with the solar interior. We go back to the very core of the sun and we talk about how the energy of the sun is produced. So how the sun fuses hydrogen into helium that causes, that gives us everything else that we've seen. So when I talk about solar interior before, I'm talking more of this overall structure of the inside. Then at the very end of this, probably on Thursday, we'll go back and talk about the very heart of the sun and what is it like, how does it produce this energy. And that's important to understand because it leads to our understanding of how stars work in general. So in bulk, you can write down the numbers if you want. I'm not going to test you on any of them, so I'm not going to expect you to know that the radius of the sun is 696,000 kilometers. You know, I, don't, I don't expect you to know that numbers know it's big. It's very massive, much more massive than the Earth, but again, you don't need to know the specific numbers. Density, 1,410. Again, you don't need to know the number. To compare that to water, in those units, water would be 1,000. So water would be 1,000, so it's a little bit denser than water. The sun is very gaseous. That means there's very outer layers that are very low density. The inside is many times denser than water. So as you go deep down inside it, when you get down to the core of the sun, its density is greater than anything we produce here on Earth. So it is extremely dense when you get down to the core, you know, 100 times denser than that. But the outer layers are very low density, you know, density of our atmosphere, which is very, very low. So it varies, but it averages out to something a little bit more than that of water. It rotates. 
uh, around about once a month, depending on where you are on the sun. So we'll look at that a little bit later. That's an interesting thing that it doesn't rotate. It's not a solid body. So it doesn't rotate like the Earth does. You know, it doesn't matter where you are on the Earth. It takes 23 hours and 56 minutes to go around once. Right? It takes 23 hours and 56 minutes. Well, if you're at the equator of the sun, right in here, it takes about 25 days. The further north you get, at 60 degrees latitude, you know, way up here, it's about 30, almost 31 days. And if you get up towards the pole, it's 36 days. It's telling us that the sun is not a solid body. So it's not rotating like a ball rotates. It's rotating like a blob of, big blob of gas that it is. Surface temperature is a number that we'll come back to, usually around 5,800, 6,000 degrees. And that's a number that I will mention on and, on and off. I'll tell you, I'll talk about that one. Again, 5,780 is a little more specific than you need to worry about. If you know it's around 6,000, that's pretty good. But, and again, the luminosity number. What you'll see for the mass and luminosity is that I'll compare everything to the sun. So really, the sun's mass is one, one solar unit. The sun's luminosity is one solar unit. And we'll compare other stars to that. Because I think that makes a lot more sense than saying that this star is 2 times 10 to the 30th kilograms. That's the sun. And this other star is 4 times 10 to the 30th. I think it more, makes more sense to you if I say this, is, this star is the sun and this star is 2 times more massive than the sun. You can relate that a little bit better than something like 4 times 10 to the 30th. I know I can. You know, 4 times 10 to the 30th means nothing to me. I understand the number, but it doesn't mean anything. Same thing with luminosity. I'm not going to ever ask you anything about that number, but we'll compare other stars and we'll find out that there are stars that are, you know, a tenth as luminous, one hundredth, one one hundredth the brightness of the sun, and we'll find out that there's some that are many thousands or tens of thousands of times brighter. So the sun's sort of stuck in there in the middle. So again, those numbers, the only ones, the only ones I'd even think about knowing anything about is if you remember the rotation period is about once a month, and that it changes as you go to different parts on the sun. That's good. And knowing that the surface temperature is about 6,000 degrees. The others, again, we'll compare other stars, but we'll compare them relative to the sun. So you don't need those specific numbers. In terms of the sun here, this is the interior of the sun. So as we divide it up, you've got the core. Deep down inside, that's where all the energy is being produced. So that's where we're going to come back to at the end and discuss how the energy of the sun is produced. It uses hydrogen into helium billions of times a second. And that causes the energy that, that slowly creeps out and causes the sun to radiate. Inside, we have two zones. We have a radiation zone and a convection zone. Heard of radiation and convection? Probably radiation, convection, and conduction, right? The methods of heat transport. You might have heard before. Well, the sun uses two of those. Conduction isn't very important in things like the things like the stars, some of the very compact stars it does work for. But most of the stars transmit energy by radiation. You know, you feel the heat coming. It just travels through that part of the sun or it travels by convection, which just means that you're moving bulk matter. So you're actually moving the you're heating up the air in the room and it heats at the floor and it rises to the ceiling and it cools off and it comes back down in a big convection cell. Well, the sun does the same thing. When it gets here, as radiation, as energy is trying to escape out, it gets towards this convection zone and it starts, instead of moving by radiation, by gamma rays, x-rays moving outward in the sun, it heats up the material and causes the whole bulk of the material. So a whole big blobs of material will rise up towards the surface 
release their heat, cool off, and sink back down in a, in a convection cell. Now the outer layers out there, and if you look at the numbers you can tell that, but they're not even close to being to scale. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of kilometers here. This photosphere is only 500 kilometers, you're talking paper thin around there. That's what we see. The photosphere is what we see as the surface of the sun. The outer layers in terms of the chromosphere, transition zone and corona are what we'll talk about in a little bit in terms of the atmosphere of the sun and what's a little bit further out. But the core is the center. The core is where everything, is where everything starts. That produces all the, all the energy in the sun. How, much sun. how much energy does the sun produce? Well, we call that the luminosity. Now, luminosity we're going to come back and talk about more in chapter 10, especially when we start talking about stars. But luminosity is just how much energy the sun is radiating. So we can estimate it by, you know, we can detect how much radiation are we getting from the sun. So how much sun, how much radiation are we getting in our little tiny portion of the sun's orbit, right? You know, we're only, we're only this little teeny tiny thing out here orbiting the sun and we're collecting some little bit of that solar radiation. And don't forget this is not two-dimensional, but this is three-dimensional. So the sun's radiations don't go out just sideways. They also come out in a whole sphere. The total luminosity of the sun, again, some tremendously big number, 10 to the 26 watts. Again, can you, can you imagine a number that big? No. I can't, you can't even com compare it to their comparison here. 10 billion one megaton nuclear bombs per second. You know, we can't come close to producing the energy the sun does in one second. If we were to you know, detonate everything we had at once, we wouldn't come close to the energy that the sun is producing all the time. And we're just collecting a little tiny portion of that right now. So that's the entire luminosity. That's how much energy the sun is putting out into space. So that illuminates the Earth, the moon, all of the planets. And again, that's, those are all only teeny tiny fractions. The vast majority of that, you know, 99.99999% of this luminosity is just going out into space. So that some distant astronomer actually sees it as a star. A very faint star, most likely, because unless you're real close to the Earth, the Sun isn't much of a star. The Sun is actually a very, very faint star. Okay. And let me just, I'll do this one real quick and then I'm going to come back and start here. This is on the solar interior. We make models. So we can't really figure out what the sun is, what's going on with the sun. We can't see it and go in there and experiment. But the models all depend on one thing. They depend on balancing gravity. Gravity wants to pull everything down. So gravity is trying to pull the sun down to a point. It wants to make it a big black hole. If gravity were the only force acting, the sun would have long since collapsed. But because it's producing energy in the interior, it produces a pressure. And that balances. So the two balance together. Gravity's pulling in. Pressure pushes out with exactly the same amount of force. It's balanced. And that keeps the sun stable. So it keeps the sun at a stable size, a stable luminosity, stable temperature over 10 billion years. So for 10 billion years, this, will actually, this balance will actually maintain. Now I'll come back and do that a little bit more and then when we get into the stars we'll talk about what happens when the energy source runs out. What happens when you take away this pressure that's supporting it at the end of a star's life then it starts to collapse and then we get things like supernovae explosions. So I'm going to get, I'll come back to this one next time. I'll leave it up right now if you want to get notes done on it right now. 
but then I will come back and pick up here on Thursday and we should have enough time Thursday to get through most of the, most of the sun if not all of it. So any other questions? Questions? Okay. If you came in later and did not get a homework, I do have the homeworks up here, homework four if you want to pick one up. So otherwise have a good afternoon and I'll see you on Thursday.